All right, good morning, guys. My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, if you're a guest, welcome. Um, We're glad you're here. Uh, I do want to reiterate, make sure you mark your calendars for that all-church meeting that we're having on August 30th. Um, We're going to have a tour of the building. We're going to open it up. um, And and we're really going to be unpacking um, our plan and and, um, some exciting stuff that's going on and and, um, and just spending some time making sure that... that, um, we're all in the know and uh, moving in the same direction together. So make sure you, you are um, marking your calendars for that. All right, before we jump in this morning, we have the opportunity to, um, to have a child dedication, um, which these are always fun. So I'm going to ask Brian and Melinda Pacheco to come up here and um, to bring along Coralie, of course. Come on out. Get a picture. There you go. Little Coralie. Hey. That's a pretty dress you got there. Um, sorry, I get distracted by Coralie every time. Um, <laughs> we've been praying for this little kid for a long time. Um, so, you guys, when we're doing child dedications... Um, she wants to hold my hand, which I don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind at all. Yeah, she's trying to get in her mouth. Um, when we're doing child dedications, what we're doing is, is we're acknowledging, um, Brian and Melinda are acknowledging that, that um, in a sense, they're, they're inadequate for the task that's in front of them, that God's entrusted to them this incredible blessing, and it's a blessing that is too great for them. Um, but it's not too great for God. And so they are dedicating themselves um, to, to raising Coralie in, uh, in the truth of the gospel and uh, so that she might come to know who God is in such a way that she might love him and follow him. Um, Proverbs, which is the book we're studying, tells us that when we train up a child in the way he should go, he, when he's old, he won't depart from it. And, and that's not a, a promise in the sense that if we, you know, plug in the right formula, we get the right result. But it is a principle that's true that when we shape the appetites of our children, those appetites shape them for the rest of their lives and will continue to influence them and guide them. And so Brian and Melinda want to shape within Coralie an appetite for the glory of God, an appetite for his blessing and his goodness. And, and, and for them to do that, here's the thing, they, they need community. They need the church because um, we're not called to do this in isolation. We're, we're called to do it as a body, as a family. And, and so they're coming before the church to, to kind of express their dedication of themselves. They're, they're offering up Coralie, of course, um, as, as a gift back to the God who gave her to them. And, and, she's, and they're inviting you into the process of, um, of walking with them of loving them, encouraging them, and supporting them, okay? And so um, as part of our child dedication, um, we have um, a a bit of a, just a simple liturgy that we do. Brian and Melinda, um, uh, are you guys covenanting together this morning to raise Cora Lee in the knowledge of the gospel, knowing that Jesus laid down his life for her, rose again for her, that she might have a hope and a future? If so, say we do. Awesome. Church, if you are covenanting to walk together with this couple, with this family, to love them, encourage them, support them, um, as, as a body should, say we do. We do. Awesome. You guys, let me, let me pray for you. 
Father God, I thank you um, for these guys. I thank you for Brian and Melinda and their faith and um, Lord, really their their absolute um, dedicated service to the church um, and the way they have grown in their faith, um, even in this process of praying for and waiting for and anticipating and now celebrating Coralie in their lives. We thank you for um, this beautiful little girl, and we pray, Lord, that you would set her apart for your glory, that you would set her apart, that she might walk in the fullness of your blessing, that she might know what it is to be deeply loved and to love deeply as a result. Father, bless this family um, and use them for your glory. We love them, and we thank you for them, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Gift for you guys. All right. Hey, you guys, come back up here. I totally forgot. And I wouldn't do this with anybody, but I, you guys get up here. Because um, it's going to make them feel awkward, and I don't mind making them feel awkward. Um, I, I'm going to ask, um, and, and this is, I'm just totally doing this out of order. Forgive me. Um, community group. Their community group. Um, and their family. Come on up. Just come on up. You're going to lay hands on them. I started doing this, I don't know, a couple times ago, and I just loved it, and I don't want you guys to miss out on it. You guys, because this is the thing. I mean, we, we at Trailhead, obviously, um, as we grow, our gathering is very, very important, um, but our life on life happens in our small groups. I mean, that's where we really know people and get known by people. And, and so inviting these guys up is, is not just a show. It is, these are the people that are walking with them. And, and um, I want to honor you guys and thank you guys. Um, Mom and dad, get up here and, and get some hands on them. <laughs> Fight clubs, get up here. Fight clubs, get up here. <laughs> Brian, anybody else you want to touch you while I'm... All right. Let's just make this as awkward as... This is awesome. All right, let me, again, let me just pray for these guys. Father, I thank you for them. I thank you that Brian and Melinda love you and that that love for you comes from your love for them. I thank you for this community that surrounds them, people that love them and walking with them. We thank you, Lord, um, that in the end, you're the one telling their story. And it is a story of redemption, um, it is a story of reconciliation. It is a story of victory, of truth and beauty because they are walking in the shadow of the resurrected Savior. So Father, I pray your rich blessing on them and on this community in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys. All right, sorry that that got a little awkward there. That was my fault. But I appreciate that you guys are good sports. <laughs> All right, you guys, grab your Bibles. We're going to uh, Proverbs chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor around you. Um, and if you're using one of our Bibles, we're going to page 528. We've been working our way through a series in Proverbs over the course of the summer. Last week, we started um, through Proverbs 3, and we're going to spend a number of weeks just sitting in Proverbs 3 um, and unpacking the truths that we have here. So we're going to Proverbs 3. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you're a guest with us and don't have a Bible, please take the one that you just picked up off the floor. Let that be our gift to you. We would love to do whatever we can uh, to put the Word of God into your hands so that you can read it and engage it um, and, uh, and ultimately be transformed by it. All right, let's take a look. We're going to read um, the first 12 verses together. We won't be focusing on all of this, but this is the section we're covering. So let's start in verse 1. My son, 
Do not forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The word of the Lord. All right, this morning we're going to be focusing on verses 5 through 8. Last week when we started, we took a look at verses 1 through 4. And we really focused on, on verse 3, that idea that, that Solomon is exhorting his son, do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And what he's doing is he's calling him to remember God's covenant love for him and to sit in that love, like really sit in it, meditate in it, allow it to work on him until it produces in him a responding love for God, where he is growing in steadfast love and faithfulness in his relationship toward God. But it, of course, it begins with God's covenant, steadfast love toward him, right? Because God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. We talked about how those two words, um, when God reveals himself to Moses, those are the first things he says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, a God of covenant, unchanging, passionate love and the faithfulness that flows through it. Now, of course, we see this most clearly in Jesus, right? Not only does God say, this is my name, this is my character, but then he shows us his character in the person and work of Jesus, right? When Jesus came and, and God became flesh and walked among us and lived the life we should have lived and then died the death we deserved to die and then rose again, um, not just for his own benefit, for, but for ours so that we could rise with him, not being defined by what we, we've done, but being defined by what he's done for us, right? He took our guilt. He took our shame. He took our sin. He died in our place as our substitute and then invites us in um, to the benefit of that, right? God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He always has been. We're the ones that walked away. We're the ones that rebelled against God. And God invites us back in, in the person of Jesus, back into a covenant loving relationship with him where our sin is no longer held against us because our savior took our place for us, right? This is the good news. This is, this is the story of God redeeming and restoring a creation that ultimately was led into rebellion by mankind. And, and here's the thing, that story is, is global it's in, in its implications, but it's absolutely personal for you this morning, right? God is inviting you into that, right? God is inviting you to trust and to believe the gospel, to, to rest in what Jesus has done for you instead of what you do for God, to, to recognize that he was your substitute, he paid your price, he ultimately is the one that, that is offering you an alien righteousness, a, a righteousness not your own, a rightness before God that only comes from Jesus, right? So what, what Solomon is saying is sit in that reality. Sit in that truth. Because the more you let that kind of love sink in, the more it's going to change you. 
The more you sit in that and receive that kind of love, the more it is going to change your heart and you will find yourself loving God in response, right? It'll shape you. It'll awaken you. It'll transform you. So this week, what we're doing is we're taking a look at how that truth plays out in some practical areas. We're going to begin this week by looking at decision-making. Now, our passage isn't specifically about decision-making as you look at it. Um, It's really about a hard attitude toward God, but it has a natural application in the way that we make decisions and the way we live our lives. Now, last week, I kind of planted the seed toward this um, and asked a few questions, and I'll re-ask them just so that we can all kind of get back on the same page. You ever, you ever made one of those decisions where when you saw the outcome of it, you looked back and thought, if I had just known, if, if I had just known where it was going, if I could have just predicted what would have happened, I would have made a very different decision, right? You ever wish you had one of those magic compasses? You know what I'm saying? Like you get to a decision and you're like, I'm not really sure which way to go. Compass, what do you think? Right? And it tells you to go left and you're like, sweet. Right? That's the right decision. Because a lot of times we come to decisions and we really don't know. In fact, we make um, millions of decisions every single day. Some of them um, tiny, at least we think they're tiny in the moment, but they turn out to be monumental. Some of them feel monumental in the moment, um, but they're really not that big of a deal in in the long run. Here's the thing though. As we're making those decisions... We don't have a magic compass, right? There, there is no um, magic compass, right? You may rely on your eight ball thing, but it's not going to work, right? Here's the thing. We do have principles in the Word of God that are based on the promises of God. And if we put those principles to work in our lives, if we work through those principles relying on those promises, um, we are, in a sense, promised Uh, a good outcome, right? And here's the big idea. If we want to walk the path that ultimately leads to the fullness of life and the blessing of God, um, we ultimately need to walk the path that God leads us on, right? We need to, we need to let God direct our steps. So when it comes to making good decisions, the bottom line is a lot of times we're our own worst enemies, right? And and that's really not that big of a surprise. Last month, I took my, my oldest daughter, Victoria, on a trip. She graduated from college, and to celebrate that, um, we went to, you like that? Um, We went to Yosemite um, National Park in California. Um, My, I I would like to say my old stomping ground is if I actually grew up in the park. Not really. I grew up um, knowing the park existed and that it wasn't that far away, but I never really got to go. Um, But Victoria and I went, and we had several days in the park, and it was was an absolute blast. I thought it was perfectly appropriate for me to sport my Trailhead Church uh, t-shirt, knowing that we were, of course, around all kinds of trails. So on the first day that we were in the park, we hiked to the top of Yosemite Falls, um, when you come into Yosemite Valley, of course, it's a huge park, but the highlight is the valley. When you come into the valley, it is just this overwhelming experience of, of granite walls and waterfalls. And one of the highlights of the valley is uh, the Yosemite Falls. It is, it is huge. It falls 2,500 feet. It's the, it is the tallest falls in North America. And, um, and in order to climb to the top of it, we had to leave um, fairly early. We left around 9 a.m., and we didn't get back down until about 5 o'clock in the evening. It was a full-day hike. It was four miles of trails. Um, it was a four-mile hike with uh, 96 switchbacks 
um, with, with stunning views. Um, so you'd be, you'd be tr- trudging along just watching your feet because it was treacherous everywhere you went. And every once in a while you would look up and this is what you would see, right? You would just, and, and that would of course just re-energize you because you're in that moment like, all right, there's a reason I'm suffering, right? There's a reason I am continuing to trudge up this, um, this hill. And it's because it was phenomenally beauty. Now there were some pretty hairy sections along the trail as well, right? When you get to the very top, um, at this point, you are 2,500 feet up, and, and this part right here is, in fact, right above the top of the falls. There's a little ledge under there, um, so it's not a sheer drop, but beyond that little ledge is actually a 1,500-foot sheer drop. And so as you're coming down, you are looking 1,500 feet down. Um, I got to admit, it took me a minute to get down that because um, you're actually, to, to get to the top, the actual very top of the falls, you have to come down that final staircase. Now, what's interesting is I found as we were hiking, it was actually harder to come down than it was to go up. I mean, it was hard to go up because my, my lungs were weak, uh, but it was really physically hard to come back down. Like it was just awkward on my knees and my hips and four miles of that kind of, of, of coming back down was incredibly difficult and, uh, and exhausting. Um, by the time I got to the bottom, I was, I was completely spent. This is us when we finally got right back down to the bottom. Um, I'm exhausted. Victoria looks like she's ready to do the whole thing again. Um, she was very patient with me, which was nice. Um, but it was, it was exhilarating. It was exhausting. And um, it was really a lot of fun. And here's the thing, there were people from all over the world in the park. Everywhere we went, we heard foreign languages. Um, this park is known around the world. People travel uh, to see it. And, and what's interesting is everywhere we went in the park, there were people doing stupid things. Okay, no joke. Like, like people climbing over railings. And uh, I saw people standing uh, at the top of Nevada Falls, which was day two. It was about a 400-foot drop, and, and they got their selfie stick, and, they're, and they've climbed over the rail under the rock, and they're trying to get a really good angle so that people can see exactly how high they are, right? Um, not smart, and it made me a little, a little nervous. Now, I wasn't incredibly surprised because I've done the same thing, not with a selfie stick, but in many other ways, right? I'm looking around, and I'm like, okay, I kind of get it. You these are my people, right? I get this a little bit. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a guy that climbs over the rails. I'm the guy that likes to take a few risks. But the reality was I was just hoping Victoria and I weren't going to have one of those Darwin Award moments, right, where we actually got to witness somebody um, improving the human gene pool by removing a little bit of stupidity. Um, but there were moments where I was tempted to be stupid myself. Um, and one of those places was actually coming back down the hill. Like I told you, there were 96 switchbats um, because it was so steep. Um, you're just constantly, it's like a mountain goat. You're just going back and forth and back and forth to get up this, this granite face. And there were times, especially on the way down, where it looks like that looks like a shortcut. It looks like somebody was smart enough to actually get rid of a couple switchbacks, Right. And, and you're tempted to go, even though there are signs that say, stay on the trail, right? Even though there are signs posted, um, danger, keep out. Um, I didn't know it, but just two months before we went on our trip, there were three young hikers that got in trouble on that very trail. Um, they had left about 2.30 in the afternoon, which is their, their first mistake, um, because it's a six to eight hour hike minimum. 
um, and they left at 2.30 in the afternoon. As they were coming down, it was getting dark. Um, and so they had decided to take some of the shortcuts um, to cut off some of the switchbacks. Kevin Bake was one of the young men, and um, he found himself stranded on the edge of a 400-foot drop-off below the lower falls. And it was twilight. The light was disappearing, and then it was dark. And he spent the night on that ledge, uh, 400 feet before, uh, below, uh, just death. The next morning, they had to call in the helicopter. The helicopter came in, um, successfully plucked him off that edge. That's uh, a happy ending. Uh, it had to be somewhat embarrassing, and I'm guessing probably expensive for him. Um, but here's the thing. The search and rescue team in Yosemite is called out about 300 times a year more than any other uh, national park simply because people underestimate the danger of actually being around um, that, sort of, that sort of stuff. He was one of the lucky ones. He survived. There are a number of people that die in that park every single year. So here's the question. Why do sane, normal people do stupid things? Why would you risk your life to get a slightly better selfie? Why would you risk your life to save 10 minutes on a four-hour descent? Because in the moment, it seems sane. Because in that moment, it seems like we are the exception to the rule. Like we know it's a good rule, and we, and we know that it's good generally for people to follow it. But in that moment, I'm not one of those people. In that moment, we think we're the exception because we know better. You guys, if we want to get God's blessing in our lives, if we really want to experience the fullness of God's blessing, covenant blessing in our lives, we need to follow God's path. We need to resist the temptation of our prideful shortcuts, right? Even if his path doesn't make any sense. All right, our verses are about how we can experience covenant blessing in our lives. So you've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, you've heard the invitation of the gospel. You have responded and said, yes, I believe in Jesus. I want his righteousness to cover me. I want him to remove my shame and guilt. Um, and in this passage, what we're looking at is really the give and take of, of Solomon saying, here's the covenant behavior that leads to covenant blessing, right? You're in covenant with God. Here's the behavior that ultimately leads to the blessing. Um, our first two verses read this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. All right, I want to break this down a little bit. First of all, trust in the Lord with all your heart. So Solomon is calling us to covenant behavior, right? This is on us, right? We're supposed to trust in the Lord with all our heart. Now, Solomon has already called us to faith, Right? When he reminded us, do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, he was reminding us, your faith is in a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He's done the work for you. Trust in him. Trust in his love and let that love change you. Right? So he called us to believe the truth. Don't turn away from God's love for you. Respond to it in faith. Believe the promises of the gospel and let those promises challenge you and change you and free you. Now he's calling us to trust. See, trust is faith in action. Trust is faith in action. Trust flows from faith. Because I always act on what I believe in, right? How many of you guys, when you came in, tested the chair before you sat down? 
Anybody? No. And I'll tell you why. It's because you had faith, a confident assurance that that chair was designed to support you. So what did you do? You trusted it. Faith always leads to actions of trust, right? What you believe always shapes what you do. And so you will act on what you believe. Now, sometimes I have to step out in faith or step out in trust to strengthen my faith, right? Like, like those steps that, that were a foot wide, and, and it was only about 20 feet down those steps, but it really was a 1,500-foot drop. I know I can walk down steps. I've done it many, many times. I know that I can walk down steps that are about a foot wide. I've done that before too, right? But in that moment, as I'm standing there contemplating walking down those steps, suddenly my faith what I know to be true is a little bit shaken, right? I have to actually do it. I have to actually take the steps and walk down. In other words, I have to act on what I know. And as I act on what I know, right, halfway down that staircase, I was way more confident than I was at the top. Why? Because as I stepped out in trust, it actually strengthened my faith. What I knew to be true was strengthened by acting on what I knew to be true. Faith gives you the ability to trust, and acting in trust strengthens your faith. Think about it like this. It's kind of like food and exercise. Why do you eat? Well, duh, because it tastes good. Yes, that's, a, that's, a, that's just a blessing from God, by the way. Food doesn't have to taste good. God could have made it really, really nasty, and you still would have had to eat it. You know why? Because you have to eat to survive, right? We have to get the nutrients into our body in order to, to be active, to live, right? Food and exercise, right? So if we eat, but we don't act, what happens to us? We become really unhealthy, right? We consume nutrients and calories, and, and then we don't expend those things. And so what ends up happening is, is we become unhealthy physically. Eating enables us to act, and as we act, it actually increases our need for eating and our enjoyment of eating, right? There's a sense in which we were called both to consume and to produce, right? And what ends up happening is it's, it's cyclical. As we eat, it empowers our actions. As we, action, as we act, it, it makes us healthy in our, in our eating. See, faith needs to be worked out in trust, some of you are really spiritually flabby, and, and the bottom line is it's because you, you have a faith, but you're not acting in trust. And, and that faith, is, is, it needs to be put into uh, exercise. It needs to be worked out in trust in your life for it to be healthy. Because as we take what we believe and, and operate in trust, that then strengthens our experience of faith, right? So faith leads to trust, and as we act in trust, it strengthens and grows our faith, now, Solomon goes on and he says, do not lean on your own understanding. Now, what he's saying is, is really the same thing, but in reverse. To lean on something is really an act of trust, right? If you lean on something, you, you assume it is going to support you. Uh, you assume that it is going to uh, not collapse underneath you, right? What he's saying is, is don't lean primarily on your own understanding of life. Don't, don't lean on, on what you know 
from your previous experience, from your logic, from your expectations. This is a really, really hard thing to do, isn't it? Because the reality is our understanding of reality is shaped by our experience in reality, and we come to trust that experience. We know what happens when we do certain things. We know what happens when we we take certain risks, and that shapes everything we understand about our lives, right? We do what we've always done because it feels right. It feels safe. In those moments of crisis, when, um, when we're really pushed into what we're going to trust, um, we by default will go back into our old patterns, whatever those are. We'll do the things we've always done. We'll say the things we've always said, the things that, that protect us, the things that get us what we want, the things that ultimately lead us to what we think is going to take us to blessing. And what Solomon is saying is, is in those moments when you want to pull back and trust yourself, don't. Push forward and instead trust God. Here's the thing. We need to remember that there's a reason God had to save us, right? It's because we rebelled against God, which means that we all have broken sinful hearts. And crooked hearts don't make straight paths. We may trust our hearts. We may trust our own understanding. We may trust what we think is right about life. And in that moment, everything like makes sense. Like what I need to do is this, even though God's saying to do this, we trust ourselves, but crooked hearts don't make straight paths. We need to learn to distrust in a healthy way. Our hearts, because our vision of life is distorted by sin. And our heart will always lay something out in front of us that looks promising. But if we lean on our understanding, if we trust ourselves first, those paths always fail. Instead, we are to, in all of our ways, acknowledge Him. Right? This means a lot more than just knowing that God is there. It means a lot more than just knowing that God exists. It means that you acknowledge that God is God and that you aren't. Right? Christians have this phrase that we use a lot, God willing, Lord willing. And there's good reason for that. There's good biblical precedent for that, right? It's actually biblical because what it's saying is we're not presuming on the future, right? Now, you don't really need to say it at the end of every sentence, really. But it's not a bad idea to say it in your head all the time, to remind yourself you're not in control, to remind yourself that the outcome is not guaranteed on your actions, that that there is a God who's telling a story and that storyteller is greater than the story you're telling for yourself. And ultimately, you're called to submit yourself and the story you want to tell for your life to Him and let Him tell a greater story because you trust Him more than you trust yourself. You lean not on your own understanding of life, but instead lean into trust, recognizing um, that ultimately God is the one who is trustworthy. It reminds us that we are dependent on Him and can't make good decisions outside of Him and that nothing we plan is certain. So so put your faith into action by moving forward in trust, right? Trust God more than you trust yourself. That's the, the covenant behavior. What's the covenant blessing then? Right? We have three lines that describe covenant behavior. What's the covenant blessing? And He will make straight your paths. That's the covenant blessing. So in order to understand this blessing, we need to think carefully about what's being said here. First of all, he says that God will make our paths straight. Notice he doesn't say that he will make our paths easy. Those are two very different things. 
the, the straightest walkable path to the top of Yosemite Falls was filled with 96 switchbacks. It was really hard to walk. It caused me a lot of pain, more than it did my daughter. And there were moments where it felt really repetitive. Like, seriously, another right turn, another left turn, right? It wasn't uh, easy, and, and in the moment, it didn't even seem straight, but it was the straightest walkable path to the top, right? It was the best path, the safest path to get from where I was to where I wanted to be. I mean, think about this in terms of the life of Jesus, you guys. If there's anybody who exhibited the covenant behavior, it was Jesus, right? He trusted the Lord with all of his heart. He leaned not on his understanding in all of his ways. He acknowledged God the Father. He fulfilled the covenant behavior perfectly. Surely God made his path straight, right? Was his path easy? Not a chance. Not a chance. Because the straight path isn't always the easy path. Right? So this leads to the second question. Where does this path go then? <laughs> right? Because we want a straight path to an easy life. That's what we want. We want a straight path to health and wealth and prosperity. We want a straight path to success. We want a straight path to everything just being all right. And, and what I'm describing sounds like it's going someplace maybe a little bit different than that. I'll tell you what, this is a straight path to life and all of its blessing. It's a straight path to the covenant blessing that is given to us in Christ, the fullness of life and all of its blessing. I'm telling you, it's where you really want to go, even if you don't know it. See, it's what's described in verses 2 and 4 where he says, length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Verse 4, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man, right? And some of you are like, Steve, I'm really in a hard spot right now. I, I've actually tried to do this. I have tried to honor God, and my life has not gone the way I want it to go, and, and things have not f- felt like it's been blessing. The problem is sometimes we set our vision on the wrong waypoint on the map. In other words, we set our, our destination to this specific success, and we define it, right? So God's blessing will look like a promotion. God's blessing will look like uh, a fulfilling um, dating relationship. God's blessing will look like, and we, we fill it in and say to God, all right, I want your blessing. And by the way, this is how it needs to look. I want your blessing. And by the way, this is how you need to give it to me. And when we don't get what we asked for, we feel like God's not blessing us. The problem isn't that God's not blessing us. The problem is we've defined how God's supposed to bless us. We're trying to tell the storyteller how to tell our stories. A lot of times I think we miss God's blessing because we don't like the package it comes in. We've said, I want this kind of package. I want this kind of wrapping paper. I want this kind of bow. And it shows up and it's like, that's not what I asked for. And we become insensitive to the blessing that's actually embedded in the experience. You guys, we have to trust that the God who's telling our stories knows better than we do that He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. 
that he will take us where we need to go for his glory and for our good. We need to ultimately set our hope on what we, um, what we know God wants to give us instead of what it looks like we're getting. Here's the thing, maybe, maybe God's blessing in this season is going to come through failure. Maybe God's blessing in this season is going to come through struggling. Because God knows there are things that have to happen in you and change in you that won't happen in any other way. Maybe God's blessing for you is, is not going to look like the way you have defined that it needs to look. That's where we need to lean back into our faith, you guys. Right? Knowing that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who he is. He is a God of covenant love. And out of that covenant love, he is always faithful to bless. And in those seasons where it is dark and hard and things don't seem to be going the way we want them to go, instead of questioning the heart of God, we need to grow in our faith and remind ourselves of what is actually true. Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, tells us that, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. See, Jesus had faith in his Father's steadfast love and faithfulness even through the seasons of difficulty and pain. And so he walked the path of trust. His faith worked its way out in trust even in the difficulty. Now Solomon goes on in the next couple of verses, continuing to spell out this covenant behavior and blessing. He says, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So verse 7 switches back to the focus of covenant behavior, right? Be not wise in your own eyes. This is a whole lot easier said than done <laughs> um, because we really think we're wise. And this is really especially hard, by the way, when we're suffering, isn't it? Isn't, isn't it really hard then? Because when we're suffering, man, it is so easy to start judging God, isn't it? Right? We just go to that place. This isn't fair, right? This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't, you're not living up to your end of the bargain, God. Subtly, what's happening is we're very wise in our own eyes and we're questioning the wisdom of God. We're the judge and we're putting God on trial and we're questioning his wisdom. To be wise in our own eyes is to judge God. When we hurt and nothing feels fair, that's really another way of just saying, God, you're not getting my life right. You missed it. And we take our short-term pain as an indicator of God's long-term lack of love and wisdom. And we grow in our self-righteousness. And by the way, that's when we turn bitter, which is poison to our souls. That, that's when we start getting angry and self-righteous and, and unpleasant and dark because our hearts were, were never designed to contain bitterness, never. We were designed to be loved by God and to operate in love. When we feel frustrated, 
because we have a desire that we can't act on, a hunger that we can't feed, when, when it feels like God is saying no to the very thing that we say we need for life, we're tempted to think God got it wrong. This is a battle of faith. I will either believe in my wisdom or God's, and I will act in trust either in my own wisdom or God's. Solomon goes on and he says, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, when the Bible calls us to fear the Lord, it's calling us to, to ultimately respect God as God. That's what it means when it says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Here, we're commanded to, to fear the Lord, right? Ultimately, it is evil. It is evil to allow our hearts to say that God's not trustworthy. It's evil for us to allow our hearts to lie about God and say that God is not a God of steadfast love and he is not trustworthy. We are misrepresenting God to ourselves and we are declaring an untruth about God. Even though we were created in the image of God to live for his glory, we ultimately rob him of his glory and say he is not who he is. So to combat that tendency of our hearts, we need to foster a healthy fear of God, a healthy respect of God, right? There is a healthy fear of God that we should have toward God, right? I mean, he's the all-powerful, all-beautiful, all-holy creator and sustainer of all life. He is the God before whom we will all stand one day to give an account for our lives. And he is the God who tells us who he is, a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And he shows us who he is in the person and work of Jesus. He not only says, this is my heart, he then shows us his heart in the person of his son. We need to rebuke the lies of our hearts. When our hearts tell us that God is not steadfast in his love, that he is not faithful, that he is not acting in love. We need to call our hearts out for the liars that they are and speak the truth to ourselves, that he is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, trustworthy and loving in all that he does. And I know that's incredibly hard in seasons of suffering. But we need to remember that ultimately God is never not doing something. God is always working to redeem and restore and tell his story of glory. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that there are turns and chapters in that that challenge us and feel painful to us as he changes us and releases us and frees us. So the covenant behavior is ultimately to humble yourself before God. The covenant blessing, it will become healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When you're suffering, isn't this exactly what you're craving? Isn't it? Right? This is another way of looking at that promise of the full blessing of life that is promised to us in the gospel, right? the healing of the flesh. This is a metaphor of physical wounds, the idea that you are wounded and, and ultimately this will bring healing to that wound and, and, and to those, it'll bring a balm to those painful places, refreshment to your bones. Uh, the Hebrews and the people of this time thought of the bones as being dry, and, and needing continual water, right? That's why you're always thirsty, um, to, to refresh your bones. And the idea here is that you are perpetually in need of refreshment. There's a dryness to your soul. There's a dryness to your life that needs a continual refreshment and renewal. So you guys, what he's saying is this, pushing into your faith in those painful times, pushing into your faith when it is difficult, following God in trust will result in refreshment. 
It will result in renewal. It will result in increased joy, even in the midst of sorrow. It will bring healing and refreshment to your parched soul. I had a friend who was struck by a neurological disease, um, and it would manifest itself in different ways in her life, um, never without discomfort, but it would come in different ways. And she told me the story. One night she was in pain and she was up and moving around. She didn't want to wake up her family. And, and, and then it, it, her eyesight just went. Her eyesight just went. And, and she was in the bathroom and she's, not, she's, she's in pain. She is, she's uncomfortable. She can't see a thing. And she just crumples onto the floor crying right? And she's calling out to God, like, where's the blessing in this? What am I supposed to do with this, right? How am I supposed to operate in this? Like, she's just like crying out to God. And, and in the middle of this, she said she kind of basically heard this voice. Now, it wasn't audible, but it was very clear. And it said, can you sing? And she's like, no, <laughs> I'm really bad at singing. Can you sing? No, can you sing? And it dawned on her as she sat there on the floor, she could sing. And so she started singing worship songs to God, quietly. And she said it was an amazing experience as the peace of God washed over her. The presence of God to bless and give life. See, sometimes the fullness of life, the blessing of the covenant doesn't always look like we want it to look. But God's changing us and freeing us. She walked away from that night different than she went into it. That experience awakened her to a deeper experience and trust in God. Sometimes I don't understand what's happening in my life, but God has a purpose for it and he is good. He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And he is absolutely trustworthy. So I want to end on a very practical note here. Um, as we come to the end, because we talked about decision-making, and, and a lot of this is our principles, really, of how to relate to God and deal with, with the difficulties as we're kind of moving through life. Um, sometimes we know when we're making bad decisions, don't we? I mean, we're just choosing to do it. <laughs> we we kind of know what God wants us to do, and we're like, mm, yeah, no. Um, I see the switchback. I don't want to walk it. I'm going to take the shortcut. And, um, and sometimes we're just dumb like that, and God, by His grace, keeps us from dying. Uh, and later we have to come to God and ask for grace and forgiveness, right? Because we sinned. We rebelled against God in that moment. We did what we weren't supposed to do. And thankfully, God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Even though we sin and rebel against him, Jesus died for us. He doesn't reject us. He loves us, right? If he waited for us to fix ourselves, he'd still be waiting. He did it for us. And so we're called, even in the middle of our shame, to come back to God and be forgiven and cleansed because of the work of Jesus, right? He may not take away the consequences of your bad decisions, but he will, as we repent and move back into covenant blessing with God, he will use that mistake for his glory and our good. We can trust that ultimately God retells our story as a story of good. But how do we make a good decision when things are difficult? How do we make a good decision when, when we know that ultimately um, we want to follow God? We're not exactly sure how. How do we know that we're trusting God, leaning on him instead of ourselves, acknowledging him and making wise decisions when things aren't black and white. Well, three very simple principles. First, is my path that I'm choosing, is the attitude that I'm choosing to, to foster in my heart, is the action I'm about to put into place, first of all, is it affirmed by the Bible? This is the first and most important question because the Word of God is God's revealed will. Right? I sit down with guys all the time, and I just open it up and I'm, look, 
You want to know about the will of God? Here it is. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, right? It's right there, right? So there you go. That's black and white. God wants you to abstain from sexual immorality. There, there's a lot of things in the scripture where, where, where it's basically black and white, right? So if somebody comes to me and says, well, I think God's leading me to do this, and I open up the Bible and say, no, he's not, because he's already said no, right? The Bible's first, right? It lays the groundworks. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not sitting around waiting to make your life miserable. He's the God who created life, and he's laying out the groundwork to bring you to the fullness of life. What he's saying is this is the path to blessing, not that's where the joy is. You can't go there. What he's saying is that's the path to sin that looks like joy, and it's going to kill you. And I love, I love you enough to tell you, so, so I'm going to point you in the right direction. So is, is my path, my attitude, my action, first of all, affirmed by the Bible? Secondly, is my path, attitude, of fact, uh, 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 action affirmed by my conviction? Right? So maybe there's something in the Scripture that is permitted, or maybe it's something in the Scripture that's not even mentioned, um, that doesn't mean that it's an absolute clear slate. What that means is I need to listen to the Spirit of God within me. As a believer in Christ, I've been indwelt by the Spirit of God, and He will give me personal convictions about what I'm supposed to do and not do. I'm going to tell you something. You need to listen to those convictions, right? If, the, if, 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 if you see people doing something and you're like, huh, I wonder if I should do that, but you feel conviction within your heart that you shouldn't, even if the Bible doesn't forbid it, you shouldn't. Scripture makes it very clear. Whatever's not done by faith is sin. Sometimes the Spirit of God will bring convictions on your heart that will limit you in ways other people aren't limited. Allow those limitations. Honor those limitations. That's the Spirit of God in His love and His faithfulness protecting you, shaping you, blessing you, and freeing you. He's not trying to keep you from something good. He is ultimately leading you to something good. Listen to the convictions of your heart and allow the Spirit of God to shape those convictions. Thirdly, is my path, my attitude, my action um, ultimately affirmed by a godly community. Sometimes the Bible isn't crystal clear on stuff, and I have to rely on my personal conviction, and that's ultimately where I need to le- listen to the Spirit. But more than that, I need to listen to godly counselors around me. I need to invite other people in to the decision-making. To the wise counselors around me, people that I know love God and are following God, affirm my course of action. If you never submit your decisions to the community of God's people, I have to ask why. God created us as a body, right? That's the metaphor, mutually dependent, right? We are ultimately called to live a corporate Christian life. doesn't mean that ultimately people get to tell me how to live my life, but it does mean the Spirit of God works through the people of God to help shape the direction of God's people. Right? That, that's why, why Paul, and, uh, Paul submitted himself to the church in Antioch and didn't go out on mission until the church came around him and laid their hands on him and said, yeah, we now commission you, we now ordain you, we now free you to follow this. Because he trusted the Spirit of God not just to shape his convictions, but to speak through the people of God. Do you have people in your life that know you that well? Do you have people in your life that, that um, you've given the freedom to, to speak in and actually influence your decision-making? Or have you closed yourself off in self-protection and pride? A lot of times we don't ask because we don't want to know. We don't ask because I just don't want to hear what you're going to say. Because in the end, I want to do what I want to do. That, that's not the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom says I want to submit to the God who's directing my path, right? And that means submitting myself to godly people around me who ultimately are going to help shape my convictions. God works through community. 
When you have all three of these things lined up, you can be very, fairly confident that you are in fact walking the path God wants you to walk. The word of God, personal conviction, and the community of people around you. God works. Now, I'm not saying pick one and ignore the others. I'm saying all three. You want to make wise decisions, get into the habit of allowing the Spirit of God to lead you, right? Now, if the Word of God says no and everyone else says yes, the Word of God trumps it all, right? That's why we go in this order. The Word of God shapes my convictions in the areas where I have freedom. I allow the Spirit to shape my convictions and ultimately allow community to shape my convictions. But I'm ultimately seeking to submit myself to God because what we're called to is a path of humility, submitting ourselves to the great storyteller. All right, I'm going to leave this stuff up and just ask you to pray and let God speak to you in it. I don't know exactly how it's going to um, speak to your heart, but I'll allow the Spirit of God um, to bring that. We're going to share communion in a moment. Um, I want to remind you that you have worship response cards in your bulletin. If you're a guest with us, we would love for you to fill those cards out. Let us know you were here. We'd love to know how you heard about us. Um, you can drop those in the response boxes up front or by the doors. Uh, and again, if you're a guest with us, please swing by Connection Point. We have a gift for you. We would love to give you just to honor you for joining us this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to create some space for you just to pray and, and let God speak to your heart. Father God, I thank you that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, that that is not just your name, it is your character. And that because of that, we can trust you. And Father, there's no place where, I guess, the rubber meets the road more practically and more relevantly than in how we actually make our decisions and align our life choices and establish our priorities for our time and our money, for our relationships, for how we um, find release and pleasure, uh, for how we find productivity and purpose. Father, I pray that you would shape us to be a people of God who are dependent and humble that honor you as God, that trust your heart enough to follow your path. I pray, Lord, where we waver and where we struggle, because we all do, that godly community would come around us, that we would open ourselves up and find faithful people to encourage us and strengthen us and love us and help us to ultimately grow in our faith as we continue to step out in trust. We thank you that you're trustworthy. We thank you that you haven't abandoned us to our own um, short-sightedness. We thank you that you first loved us. Increase our love for you. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.